morning. It's so good to see all of you this morning. Our, have our, our Bethel Church together with us on this Lord's Day where we can sing praises to his name. I know those songs this morning were uh, an uplift to me and got me ready to speak this morning. We are in week three of our series, This Is Our God. And if you're new with us, we spent 13 weeks in Joshua over the summer, and that is on a podcast out on uh, Apple or Spotify. You can go and listen to that series from the summer. But we're taking a series of looking at who is the God that we serve. The only way we know about God is by what he has revealed to us about himself in Scripture. And the theme verse throughout this series is in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 34. It's the first time that God gives attributes or characteristics about himself to us in Scripture. And so each week we're taking one of those attributes and preaching through that to learn more about who is this God that we sing praises to? Who is this God that we come here on Sunday morning and worship? Through this series, we've been reading in Exodus, and let's read this verse together. Exodus chapter 34, we see the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Two weeks ago, we looked at God's justice and how all of these attributes are wrapped up in his justice. Last week, we Looked at the first one here of compassionate that he reveals to us. And then this week, we're going to focus in on God's grace. We're going to unpack this passage today in Ephesians here in a few moments that contains multiple attributes of God. So you're getting like a four for one today when it comes to the attributes of God. But this Ephesians passage is so packed full of theological truth that we're going to see is wrapped up in God's immeasurable grace. In the old days, there were three stages of courtship between a man and a woman. If you enjoy watching like old Victorian shows, maybe on the, the BBC or something like that, you'll see these three stages. There was number one where you were able to talk with one another if you had been properly introduced by your parents. Number two, you may walk together outside if you so choose. Number three, if you have affirmed your mutual affection for one another, then you're able to keep company with one another. But even then, keeping company, they did not keep company with one another alone, but it was in the presence of a chaperone. And when they walked, although they walked side by side, they did not walk holding hands. The only time you could get to hold her hand is if you were privileged enough to dance with her. And the lady, you could hold the lady's hand at the event of the dance. But even after the dance was concluded, that gave you no access to her as an individual. 
nor she to you. It seems like such a strange world, doesn't it? And we think back to those times, and you think about the dreadful nature of where we are today. I'd be quite glad as a father of two daughters to take my daughters back to the Victorian age when it comes to courting and dating. I'm sure they would not be remotely interested in it, but I certainly like the idea. You know, you think about even parents today, when it comes to children, especially as a dad of daughters, you have those questions of, who are you talking to? Who are you spending time with? Who are you out walking with? Those are still important questions today that a parent will ask. The reason I mention it is because the passage we're going to read today from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is reminding his readers here in this passage that they were once walking with another. And they were enjoying the company of another prior to Christ. They were enjoying the company of the prince of the power of the air, but this has now all changed because of Christ. Let our, let's read our passage today, which is the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and this is going to take the rest of our time to unpack this theologically rich passage that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's your transition, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's grace again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In verses 1 through 3, we see that he is describing a way that we were. What did he say in those verses? We were dead. 
We were enslaved. We were condemned. And it's important for us to recognize what a radically different perspective that is, namely the biblical divine perspective of man. The Bible is making it perfectly clear that man is not simply lost and in need of direction, nor is he just confused and in need of instruction, or just weak and in need of strength, or sick and in need of medicine, or unhappy and in need of joy. All of those things, yes, are true, but rather, what does Paul say in this passage? That man is dead and in need of life. And the raising of the dead is done only by the work of God. Can we pause just a moment and remind ourselves of the fact that the story of the Bible is that we have been made for a relationship with God. We as the creation of the creator, you've heard me say this many times on Sunday morning, but we were created to worship God. But when we break that relationship with God, we find other things to worship. There is truly no one in this life that is non-religious because it's against our being. We were created to worship. So if we choose not to worship the true God, we will find something else to worship. Why? Because that's hardwired inside of our DNA. We will worship. And because of our sin, we choose to live our lives without God. And as a result, we are alienated from God. And God is not indifferent to that. Our alienation is two-sided. From our, we are alienated we have alienated ourselves from him on the account of our sin, and we are alienated from God to us on account of his wrath. And the mystery of his grace is that that in Jesus, God has reconciled himself to sinners. That Jesus did not come to tell us what we need to try and make ourselves Christians. He came to save us, to reconcile us to God. That is why he came. That is what God has done. And we come now to ask the question as we pry open this passage, why has he done this? Why did God do this on our behalf? Why did God send Jesus to this earth to reconcile us? And Paul essentially answers this with four statements. Or four attributes of God that explain why he did this. We see it because, let's start with the immensity of God's great love. It says there in that passage, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. If you know the Bible at all, you'll know the verse, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is the work of Jesus on the cross that we have that everlasting life. You see, Jesus' work on the cross was not to coerce 
the father into granting something that he did not want to give, nor was it the work of Jesus on the cross, a reluctant engagement that which the father had planned, but it was the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit working together according to the counsel of their will from ages past. And although mercy comes here in verse 4, we take it first because it is from the fountain of God's love that the streams of mercy flow. It is out, it is the, it is out of the fountain of God's love. It is his love which is the guiding force of his mercy. Remember in the Old Testament, God says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Well, on what basis does he show mercy and to whom? It is on the basis of his love. As a kid, I sang a, an old hymn in church that as I was preparing this message, it just came to my mind, thinking through the words of this hymn. And it said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. What was the plan? The plan was put together by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. What was that gulf? It was reconciling us, sinners, to a holy God. That gulf that Jesus spanned for us, why? At Calvary. Calvary did it. Mercy, there was great, and grace was free. Pardon was multiplied to me. There my burdened heart found liberty at Calvary. When you think about the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, the one who takes off by himself and makes a royal mess of things and righteous living. What moved the father to mercy and relationship to his son was his love. His love for his son. The story is not clean up and God may have a place for you. The story is you were completely unable to clean up and God reached down and washed you and raised you, and made you new, and set you free. Why? Because of his love. So we see his love. Next we see his mercy. Mercy really doesn't mean very much unless you're sitting there and observing it. As a part of his mercy, you know, Two things that are two of the difficult thing, most difficult things I've had to experience as a pastor is being there during the death of a loved one for someone in the church. That's one. The other thing is being in the courtroom and awaiting the sentencing of someone that you love. I've had to do that as well. That's some of the longest minutes waiting for the judge to hand down the sentencing. You see, in life, we are justifiably condemned and we await our sentence. And instead of the sentence being carried out against us, we are set free on account of mercy. When you're sitting in the courtroom, you're waiting for the judge to provide mercy to the accused. 
accused. What is the judge going to do? Is the judge going to throw the book or are they going to have mercy? You see, mercy means nothing to us in this life unless we truly understand our predicament. That is why the Bible is so very clear in the way it unfolds this. That's why Paul writes as he does when he says, you were this, you were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned, but God who is rich in mercy. So many people approach God like you would if you were trying to get access to a club based on the on the basis of your social background, or getting into a university based on your intellect and your test scores, or your ability to run fast or dribble and shoot a ball. You got a scholarship for a particular sport, and then your whole life has been such that you are pretty well convinced that you've earned everything for yourself, and there is no good reason for you to be in the status and the position that you are in outside of what you've done. It's all about me. I pulled my own self up by my bootstraps, and you forget that it's God's grace that gave you that intellect, that gave you that athletic ability. All of that comes back to God and his grace and mercy. You come up against this story of the death of Jesus on a cross who comes in order to deal with us who are dead and enslaved and condemned and nothing that we can do to receive salvation. You see, you don't want to ask for justice. That's not a good idea. We talked about that in week one because if we got what we truly deserved, it would be death and hell because of our sins. So we don't want to ask for justice. There's a story about a man that was having his photograph taken for a brochure. And he said to the photographer, now I want this photograph to do me justice. I think it's probably for some real estate. You know how the, the real estate agents you know, like to make themselves look really good for their you know, real estate stuff. Sorry if anybody in here is a real estate agent. But you always kind of make yourself look really good for that photograph. But he said, I want the photograph to do me justice. And the photographer says, well, having looked at you for a bit, what you require is mercy, not justice. There's no Photoshop that will be able to fix that figure. You are in need of great mercy. We are in need of mercy. But he says it's not because it was that attribute of mercy out of which the initiative of God proceeded, but rather that in calling us to himself, he purposed to display his love by way of his mercy. So his love is displayed through his mercy. Mercy causes a king to pardon a traitor, but only love will raise a traitor to sit beside the king upon his throne. And what do we discover is true of us? He has not only God made us alive in Christ, he has raised us with him and he has seated us beside him on his throne as joint heirs in Christ. We see his love. We see his mercy. This verse also talks about the immeasurable riches of his grace. 
Why has God done this? What has he done? He has quickened us. He has raised us. He has seated us. Why? Because of his love, because of his mercy, because of the immeasurable riches of his grace. In verse 7, Landry, if you'll put that verse up there, verse 7, there we go. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is simply reinforcing the fact that all that God has done, he has done because he is gracious. Because he is working toward his own holy will. You see, mercy is on the account on account of his mercy we don't receive what we deserve whereas grace we receive what we don't deserve. Grace is the undeserved unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve what God has given to us. That is his grace, the undeserved unmerited favor of God. Mercy just the opposite on the account of his mercy, we don't receive what we deserve. So we see his immeasurable grace, and then we see the kindness in Christ. It says, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see how all of these things are in Christ. That's why John Calvin says, remember that all that has been done for us in Christ is of no value to us so long as we remain outside of Christ. If you have not accepted Christ, you're like the people standing outside of the building looking at this wonderful party that's happening on the inside, seeing all the wonderful things unfolding from within. But you've never entered yourself. You have never actually come by faith to trust in the promises, in the assurances that are given in the gospel. And that may be you this morning. I don't know. Maybe there are some of you out there this morning that this is you. Has his kindness brought you to repentance? Do you remember when you deserved a significant reinforcement of the principles of parental discipline. Do you remember that time in your life? I can remember it very, very vividly. I had a father who made sure that I was an obedient child. And those times when I deserved discipline and my father showed me kindness, I was very, very thankful. Very thankful. Do you then, says Paul as he writes to the Romans, do you show contempt for God's kindness? How many times, may I ask you, are you going to its spurn the kindness of God. How many times are you going to hear his voice? How many times do you plan on running the risk that you'll hear the gospel message here on Sunday morning or out 
throughout the week? How many times will you withstand his amazing love and the vastness of his mercy and the riches of his grace and walk away from him and choose not to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior? Today, if you feel that tugging on your heart, don't harden your heart. That is the Holy Spirit calling you to him. That is the kindness of God calling you to salvation. So we see all of this. We should be amazed by his grace. All of this, we should be amazed by his grace. So let's summarize. Why then has God acted in this way in salvation? On the account of his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness, in order that, there is your purpose clause, so that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, the whole universe is going to see what God has done. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, that raised Jesus from the dead. And in raising us from spiritual death, he is displaying the immeasurable riches of his grace in Ephesians chapter 2. Heaven is the final showroom and earth is God's workshop as he paints on the canvas of our lives. So everyone sitting here this morning has a different face. There's nobody here that looks alike. Everyone here has arrived from a different place and all from different backgrounds, and it is the work of God in and through us to conform us to the image of his Son so that although we come from different places and we have all kinds of different experiences, we are all unified by this reality of Christ in us. The reason all praise belongs to God is because God alone is the author of our salvation. By grace, we have been saved from the death and slavery and the condemnation that we considered in verses 1 through 3. How has this happened? Because of God's amazing grace. Grace is the cause. You see, faith is the conduit. We bring nothing to our salvation except the sin from which we need to be saved. Salvation is not a transaction between God and us whereby he contributes grace and we contribute faith. You'll notice in his language here, this is not your own doing, this faith. This faith is a gift of God. Faith is our response. It is not our contribution. Our response is faith. We're entirely dependent upon God for the capacity to embrace the gospel. That makes sense, doesn't it, if we're dead? What can you do if you're dead? Absolutely nothing. So if you're dead, you're going to have to be made alive so that you might then be enabled to reach out to the empty hands of faith and receive a gift from God, which is the gift of salvation. You'll notice that salvation isn't an achievement of our own doing. It is a gift, nor is a reward as a result of the works that we have done in verse 9. 
If it were, then there would be a basis for boasting. But in this wonderful balance you'll find throughout the Bible, although we are not saved by works, we are saved for works. And what he is saying in verse 10 is that our ongoing Christian living depends on God's grace. All day, every day, is God's grace. All of it. The good deeds that he has prepared beforehand as they are worked out in our lives, are the evidence of God's grace in your life. Every aspect of your life is an act of God's grace. The air that we breathe, the voice that God is now allowing me to use to communicate, the intellect that we have the ability to reason, to determine right from wrong, to have wisdom in life, all of this is God's grace. Have you thought that it is the grace of God that restrains, even in this moment, Satan and his demons from the wickedness that they want to perform in this world. That is God's grace. Even the difficult times in life that we experience, and there are some of you in here today who are maybe going through a deep, dark valley in your life. And even the difficult times are an act of God's grace because God uses those times as a way to conform us to the image of his son. That is an act of grace. You see, I think the real question that we should finish with today is, am I amazed by God's grace? Are you amazed by the grace of God? You should be able to look at every area of your life and recognize the immeasurable riches of God's grace. When you have your prayer time this week, reflect and thank God, even if you're sitting around the table. Reflect and thank God for more than just the food or a good day or the things accomplished. Reflect and thank him for his love on display through his mercy so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.